you have all these romantic visions of the Bedouin and like Lawrence of Arabia, and you're finally there. At the same time, you know, that was the first hour. <laughs> From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. In this episode, we'll meet a man who was burning to share what he knew with the world. Eric Nye's story starts with something he learned in college. I used to run cross country, and I had some difficulties overcoming some mental blocks. You know, when you run, you have to push through the pain. That was all of a sudden difficult for me to do. So when I discovered that relating to God was a relationship matter and not a doctrinal matter, that changed my life. I overcame a lot of fears. I overcame depression. I could push through this thing I was doing in sports. My whole life went up several notches. I had something that if people could just understand what that thing was, It was up to me to communicate that and up to God to work in their hearts so they could listen and understand what I had to say. I knew that they would want it. So Eric joined a mission program run by his college. After he graduated, he set off to spend two years in the Middle East. He stayed in Jordan for the first year, learning Arabic. Then his group was sent to Sudan, where Christian missionary work was illegal. Members of his group each pretended they were there for other reasons, like anthropological research. One lady, her name was Anne, was uh, researching a people group or tribe called the Kababish in northern Sudan who were nomadic, who raised camels. So I thought, by gosh, I'm going to be her researcher and go out into the field and gather information for her. That's the, that's the last frontier, like the Arab Bedouins in the desert, on the edge of everything that is and that we know. There aren't that many frontiers left, you know, in the world. It's globalization has brought us all closer together, but these guys are still as far as you could get. My friend John, who we had gone to college together, and he was a spiritual mentor to me, So I called him up and said, why don't we go do this research trip and research this people group and at the same time try to share our faith with them. John is John Dunham, the guy with the donkey in episode 11. There's this thing called the 40-day trail that you start in western Sudan in the Darfur province where the genocide occurred. But this was prior to that genocide. We met a camel trader who put us up in his house for about a week and then helped us purchase camels. John and I bought two camels. I named mine Punk, and he named his Tariq. We bought all the stuff that goes with it. You needed a saddle. You needed a reins and ropes called camel hobbles that keep the camel from wandering off in the desert. And then uh, we waited around until our camel trader was ready to send a group of 100 camels up north into Egypt, where he was going to sell them for processing on down the line. They would be eventually slaughtered and eaten. So we waited around for that in El Fasher and took about two or three weeks, but eventually we got the green light. You have all these 
romantic visions of the Bedouin and like Lawrence of Arabia and you're finally there. At the same time, you know, that was the first hour. <laughs> hour number two on, you're like, wow, this is this really chafing my rear end. <laughs> and then you start wondering, how am I going to survive this? Like, how how will I do this day in and day out for like the, the next two and a half months? Eventually, we built a callus. So we started off with this group of camels, and it was like cattle drives of the Old West. It was something similar, I'm sure. We had 100 head of camel, camels. What's it like to ride a camel? Uh, bumpy. <laughs> so first, first you have to make this sound. You have to go, and you, it's called, I think it's like in Arabic, the word is or something. But you have a rope that's in around their head and in their mouth, and you, you it's not in their mouth, just around their head, not like a horse. And you pull that down and you make the sound and then that camel basically kneels down. You get on and then when you're ready to get up, you sort of pull up on the reins and then in order to make the camel go, you, it's kind of like kicking a horse a little bit, but camels are more stubborn and less, their, their personality is a little bit different from horses. I don't have a lot of experience with horses, but I know horses, you can be, you could be friends with a horse. You could develop a relationship with a horse, even if the horse is stubborn and hard. You can relate. Camels were hard because they, they were as hard personalities as the Bedouins who lived in the desert with them. So they kind of did their own thing and you had to threaten them. The, the way to get them to go, basically, you had to hold the, either a whip or a... Uh, you had to hold up the rope that was the end of the rain and make and threaten to hit them. Then they would go where you, you would want them to go. I, you know, I was two and a half months with my camel. I don't think I understood him or he understood me better than when we first started. There's a bunch of things that camels do and they're like, either they're mating or they're, if you have two alpha males that are sort of competing, They'll make demonstrations of prowess, I guess. And that's when they do the, these gurgling, they do these blah, 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 like gurgling sounds. <laughs> and they, then they'll spit up something. <laughs> and I think also if you're annoying them, they'll, they'll spit up something. You know, there's these flies that fly around and lay eggs in, in the camel's noses. And so the uh, one time our, my camel sneezed and out came this huge like larvae worm thing. <laughs> really disgusting <laughs> but aside from that it was bumpy you were sitting right on the hump you kind of had to situate this blanket that you had in the right way you crossed your legs in the front and there was a post from the saddle that came up between your legs so you'd hang on that way we must have learned like literally probably 30 different words for camel you know, in English, it's camel. <laughs> in Arabic, it's hashia, ibel, ba'ir, jamil. You know, those are, these are just some of the, those like four I can just rattle off. They drink camel milk. They ferment the camel milk and make this other drink. They, they make yogurt out of it. They, some people even swear by the medicinal properties of camel urine. The weather is hot during the day and cold at night and very just rough, unforgiving atmosphere that they live in. The compassion, though, that they have, you can see it towards their animals and towards one another. 
leading the pack was, they called it a Khabir, a guy who was the expert. He understood the trail, he knew where the water was, he knew how to you know, protect the camels, and four shepherds, Ru'a, they called them. We started off with that group. We rode about you know a week, week and a half, and there were some different personalities among the shepherds in the group, as you can imagine, and we got along with some of them, some of them not. There was this one guy that just, everything he saw that we had on us that was a little bit different, he just kept asking us for things. And the time I was like struggling. Like to take them? Yeah, I just wanted things. Like I, my watch, for example. I, <clears throat> I don't wear a watch to this day because I was so frustrated at these material things that differentiated us from uh, these people we are with standing in the way of us relating to these people. You know, I, 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 I thought they would want something deeper. So they, he wanted something that he could see that was tangible to him. I couldn't figure out why he didn't want the thing that I had to give to him that meant much more. Why did he want this stupid stuff that was going to break in a few weeks? And so when I came up with, met someone who had nothing, and I had all this crap on me and came from a privileged background in the United States, you know, I always could not help but know that the way that I should go is to give, you know, not hold back because that person in front of me doesn't have what I had. So that was a struggle of knowing when to give and how to give and who to give to. I was frustrated with God. I didn't know what God wanted me to do. Unsuccessful at converting new Christians, Eric and John decided they needed to regroup. So after a week and a half with these shepherds, they stopped while the camel train went on. One of the shepherds brought them to his family's nearby hut. And that family took us in and they, as is custom, they're very generous people. They slaughtered a goat for us. And so... And that's probably a big deal. Yeah, it was probably, you know, like half a month's worth of income for them. So we stayed with them for a day or two, and then they gave us two goat legs, which we wrapped in burlap and put in our saddle bags, and we just headed off on our own. We had brought some old British maps from like, this must have been from like the 40s or 30s or something. We had a GPS unit that our my missionary boss made us take with us, which we were supposed to transmit daily messages so we knew we were safe, which was a whole other story, but... This GPS allowed us to know our coordinates and navigate on these maps. And so we basically wandered our way through this arid desert on our own. It felt much like rural Wyoming in some senses, you know, where you're you're driving down a road and you can look out to the right and to the left and not see anyone. But if you know the area well enough, you know that just over that hillside, there's family X, like the Smith family and their ranches over there. And... The Goldsteins are over here, and they're so you have this feeling like you're in a big neighborhood. Every once in a while, we'd see camels off in the distance, or a shepherd pass through here, or a guy that was going between a town and his and his house. He just crossed our paths, and we talked to him a little bit. Meanwhile, during that time later, I I learned later my boss, our boss, didn't know where we were because we couldn't transmit. We didn't have a hill around us, and we were nervous to pull this. GPS transmitter out when you had all these security agencies walking around. See, everyone thought we were CIA anyway when we pulled this thing out. And we were, you know, two white guys, obviously not from the Sudan, like wandering around in this area. After a few weeks, Eric and John met a new group of camels and shepherds and joined them. You know, at one point we were, we were walking along up on the western bank of the Nile and it was getting 
towards dusk, and I remember looking out in front of me, and there was a there was a dip sort of in the horizon before it went back up. Then you could see five separate groups of 100 camels, all on the same day. In other Arab countries, the Bedouin way of life is sort of dying out because of, because of modernization. You know, people do have pickup trucks now instead of riding your camel. In Sudan, it's very much alive. We began Ramadan is a month of fasting for Muslims. We began Ramadan halfway through our trip. And so we got to witness even an even like sort of more extreme version of what Bedouin people live like. When you're in that heat all day long and the dust and the camels are, you know, that, that thing just wears at your rear end, right? So it's just, it's just tiring. And you can't drink water during Ramadan. No, no. So we, and we respected their fasting. We, so we, we fasted with them during the day from sunrise to sunset, no water, no food, no, we would have some dates we would eat every once in a while for energy, we couldn't eat the dates. And so by the time the sunset, you were just exhausted. And then at night you would, uh, after a while you wouldn't even feel the freezing cold. And you were sleeping on the, you were sleeping on the ground, you just had a, basically a guinea sack you'd lay on top of, and then a blanket that you would sit on during the day was your cover. So. We, practically freezing at night, but during Ramadan it was the best we slept ever because you were just so exhausted that there wasn't any, you didn't even, you started not to even feel the cold anymore. Eric and John were still having trouble getting anyone interested in Christianity. Eric says part of this was because the Bedouins didn't really want to open up and connect. So sharing Christ usually turned into a debate over theology and theological differences between what the Quran says and what the Bible says. Debates on theology are not usually the way that people find Jesus or have find a relationship with God. It's, it's their way of life to not be vulnerable. If you're vulnerable, you die. So Eric felt more and more frustrated, and there was nobody he could talk to about it. I, I just talk a lot. I like to when I have when I have a an issue. I'm, I've learned I'm an external processor, so I talk things through. They don't talk things through. <laughs> John, my friend, he was the same way. He also, he's not an external processor. Internal processor, you know, we were supposed to be uh, witnessing Jesus and the love of Christ and love of God. As I was frustrated with my inability to win anyone over to my way of thinking and my beliefs, I, I was talking to John. John was internally processing and I got very frustrated. And I couldn't take his silence anymore, and so I lunged at him, and I pulled it. We were both on camels, and so I pulled him off of his camel. Uh, John's twice my size. You've met him, I think. And so he just sort of held me there, and he was he just, what is this crazy guy doing? Meantime, we, our compatriots who were leading the hundred head of camels, had to stop the group. They lost time. They had to sit us down. They had to decide whether they were going to, you know, ride me over to the nearest police outpost, which is probably half a day's ride from there, they they allowed me to continue to ride, so that, I was grateful for that. That was probably God's intervention. <laughs> Eric had unexpected moments of quiet time, too. You're in a land where the laws of government are not the trumping or governing laws of this area, because you're far from 
the police stations or security apparatuses of the country. So what governs is family relationships. One of the ways of expressing frustration against another tribe is to steal some of their stuff. It's provoked and it also provokes in turn dialogue that ends up getting tribal leaders together and working out problems. So we were in this area that was known to be an area where this other tribe operated. We assigned different one-hour periods of time where everyone would take turns watching the, the group of camels. Mine was like between two and three in the morning or something. One guy woke me up and he gave me the AK-47 and said, it's your turn, and he went to bed. And I stood there for an hour, and it was spiritually very interesting because, you know, you're you're with the shepherds in the desert night, sort of recalling what it was like during the birth of Jesus where the shepherds are abiding. The angels appeared to those people in that crappy situation first. You know, instead of going to the... The angels didn't go to the kings and the people living in the houses. They went to the people in the desert that were in this, like, desperate situation and appeared and said, Jesus is born. I could understand a little bit the power of that message in being in that situation. You're, you're scared. You're vulnerable. It's already difficult living conditions. You're... You're barely making ends meet, and all of a sudden that comes to you. For me, in that situation, it was sort of euphoric. After a couple of months in the desert, the camel train finally arrived in Egypt. How did you feel in those last few days? I mean, it sounds like it was kind of disappointing in some way and that maybe you didn't quite do what you had set out to. It was a mix because it was a huge sense of accomplishment and just having survived that ordeal and learning the stuff we did. And I, I produced this big pamphlet on everything that we learned. But the the ultimate sort of spiritual objective, I was very disappointed at how that turned out. I just didn't understand how I could fail in that way. You know, usually when you read these books about missionaries, you know, they're always like this climactic thing. They're either martyred or they're, they start these huge churches and lots of people like are converted and that just didn't happen. Not that or that. I was just left in my miserable existence of failure. So Eric decided missionary work just wasn't for him. You can't legally be a missionary, a Christian missionary in Arab Muslim countries. But I was tired of like hiding and pretending to be something else. And, and I didn't like the expectation of having to convert someone because I couldn't convert anybody. I love the Middle East. I love the language. I love the people that I, I had good friends back in Jordan. And so... I just decided, I think in the future, I wanted to just live and work a normal job and be who I was, which happened to be Christian. If I know people and get to know friends, I can share what's inside of me with them, learning to see what God would do. Eric ended up staying in the Middle East. He worked in international development in Iraq, where he met his wife. 
And my last year in Iraq, just skip forward 10 years, we finally had this like culmination of what I thought I was looking for, which was a Bible study in our home of people who had Muslim backgrounds but had believed in Jesus and God just sort of brought them together. Everyone had a unique story of why they why they believed in Jesus. Everyone came from a sort of a different walk of life. And somehow they all ended up our house and we were just doing this weekly meeting and it was encouraging to everybody. That was what I was looking for. It was something that God was doing that I, in spite of myself, could be a part of. Not that I would go out and accomplish. Did the Bedouins change you more than you changed them? Yes. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah, I didn't, uh, as I said, (laughs) I don't think anything I did changed them in any way. Our storyteller was Eric Nye. He's back in his home state of Wyoming, working on a master's in global studies. Thanks to John Dunham for introducing us to Eric. I'm Caroline Ballard. The show is produced by Aaron Jones, Anna Rader, and Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. Next time, we'll walk with a teacher who followed the footsteps of two young women who escaped slavery. You can hear that story on March 29th. It's human nature.